So two wonderful songs, weren't they? Fix our eyes on Christ and taking Him at His word and trusting ourselves to Him and Him alone. I love that second song because it reminds me that I'm bound to Christ. That He sticks by me. That He'll defend me. That He'll renew me each day. And that ultimately He'll see to it that I stand before Him uh, and His throne. And uh, these truths often rush in on us like the summer rain. It's because our dry hearts so desperately need them. As we go through life, our burdens quickly add up, don't they? It's easy to get overwhelmed in the day-to-day. At work, your deadlines bear down with seemingly less and less time to get them done. New initiatives are added. And those come with new responsibilities. Not to mention the added dynamics of office politics. You guys don't know anything about that, do you? How about self-serving bosses? Lazy coworkers. You finally get the day done and you get in your car to head home and you're just wondering how you're going to get it all done this week. But on the drive home, you glance at gas prices and you wonder if they'll ever come back down to where they were before the spike. But then the cost of gas triggers another thought about food and how your food budget has increased 30%. And you think things like, will we be able to weather this? How long is this going to last? So even the drive home has burdens. And then you get home, and there's more burdens. There's grass that needs cutting, clothes that need folding, young children that need everything. (laughs) Teenagers who don't think they need anything. Or maybe home is a burden because your heart aches for what you don't have. Or what you once had that you no longer have. And maybe it's just easier to sit in the driveway than to go inside. Maybe you're burdened for aging parents. And you need wisdom for how to best care for the complexity of their needs. Or maybe you're the aging parent. And you feel guilty about the complexity of your needs. And you wish that you could be as useful maybe as you once were. Maybe there's a spouse who needs Christ. Or a wayward child that's struggling. Or roommates who could learn a thing or two about common courtesy. Point being, the burdens abound at home too. Let's think about church. Surely there are no burdens there. Um, but there are. The new believer just asked you to, dis- to disciple them, and you have no idea what to do. Children's ministry needs more workers. The young mother, she needs encouragement and training. The bereaved need friends. The sick need visiting. Someone in your Sunday school class just miscarried or got diagnosed with cancer. Many of your old friends, as you look around, you see a passed away and their empty seats make your heart ache. And that's just the normal course of life. If you add to that what we heard this morning, that not only will life be generally burdensome, but we also experience persecution for Christ's sake. Not only is work hard in itself, but now we take extra heat because of Christ. We won't join that gossip in the workplace. We won't cut corners. Or we give a clear and bold reason for the hope that we have within us. 
We're ostracized from the families that we love because our, our lives convict them. And we have less and less in common with them as we grow. We're maligned and we're misrepresented when we don't approve of the culture's sinful agenda, like Pastor Brian's been reminding us in our Sunday night series. So how do we handle these day-in and day-out burdens? How do we navigate the complexities of this life? How do we faithfully weather opposition for Christ's sake? And beyond this, how do we not just simply survive, but actually thrive like Christ would intend? How can we live lives that matter for Christ's sake, rather than just eking by? How can we bear eternal fruit that will outlive us and reap reward forever? What we're going to see tonight is that John answers these questions with one simple and yet profound word. It's the word on our screen. The word abide. For John, the way to bear up under life's burdens, the secret to navigating a hostile world, the way to live fruitfully and profitably right in the middle of suffering, is by abiding in Jesus. Now, we could go to a number of places in John's writings to explore this theme, and we're going to be in 1 John tonight, in 1 John 2. But, as I'm sure you know, the most extended treatment of abiding is where? A little louder. John 15, that's right. John 15, you don't need to turn there. Just listen, I want you to listen to how central this command is for a fruitful, meaningful life. Jesus says in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then a little later on in the passage, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So to abide in Christ is absolutely crucial if we're going to flourish. Without abiding, say it negatively, our lives won't amount to anything. But what does it mean? What is Jesus getting at here when he tells us to abide in him? Well, let's start with the metaphor Jesus gives right here in this this passage in John 15. We're compared to branches of a vine. I'm sure you saw that. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We're compared to branches in a vine with Jesus himself as the vine. So for a branch to abide means that the branch stays attached to the vine. If it gets severed for some reason, it'll wither and it'll die. It loses access to water, to its necessary nutrients that it takes to flourish. But if it stays attached, if it continues to receive water and nutrients, it grows and eventually it produces fruit. Now, the key concept here is dependency. 
dependency. And it's not a one-time dependence, but a continual dependence. So, I like to garden. I'm like a novice gardener. We're like a green bean vine, or like a pole bean, not a strawberry plant. Okay? Everybody who's not a gardener is like, what? What is he talking about? <laughs> if you've ever grown a strawberry, or strawberry plants, one of the fascinating things about this plant is that it sends out a long runner, and the runner will actually root down in the soil, and it will become its own plant over time. Then you can snip the, the runner from the mother plant, and it will survive on its own because it's got its own root base. But that's not us. Even though we try to function like that in the Christian life sometimes, we're like pole beans. We're constantly dependent on the main stem. We're dependent on that singular root system of the stem for our nourishment. And so my short definition goes like this. If we're going to try to define abiding... Maybe, I guess. The shorter definition can go like this. To abide just means to keep depending on Jesus. Right? To keep depending on Jesus. It's similar to saying that it's a life of continual faith in Christ. You want to borrow Paul's life of faith from Galatians 2.20. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's a persevering dependence on Christ. So if you want a longer definition, you could say it like this. You guys might want to help me out up, up there. A persevering dependence on Christ for spiritual life and sustenance. And this dependence then results in an increasingly fruitful life. It's a dependence that perseveres. And it depends on him for spiritual life and sustenance. And it has a result. This results in an increasingly fruitful, we could add joyful, life. So tonight we're going to lean in and let the Apostle John help us think through how to cultivate dependence on Jesus from 1 John chapter 2. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. 1 John chapter 2. Begin in verse 26. As we would expect, abiding is just as crucial in this letter as it is in John's gospel. But it's important to know that here, John was writing to a church that was in crisis. A group of teachers had arisen within this church, and they were contradicting what John had taught them about Christ. They were trying to garner a following. They were trying to mislead the saints. And eventually, they left the church and they took others with them. Church split. And those who were left behind, those who stayed and were trying to stay faithful to their Apostle John, they were shaken. And they needed some pastoral reassurance that they were on the right path. Or as John says in 1 John, the path of life. But instead of being rattled, John wants them to remember Christ's own predictions, that these kind of things would happen in the last days, or as John says in this letter, the final hour. He's talking about the period of time that Jeff talked about this morning in his passage. 
It's that time that Israel's prophets looked forward to, that they predicted the time of the Messiah, the time that's characterized by deception, by false Christs, by suffering for God's people. It's that time that we're in today between the first and the second comings of Christ. And so we shouldn't be alarmed that people oppose us and are trying to lead us astray. Instead, John says, we should abide in Christ. John knows that as we learn to cultivate a dependent relationship on Jesus, that this will be our great safeguard to navigating the pitfalls, navigating the deceptions, and those worldly lusts that surround us. Not to mention all those daily burdens that we talked about at the beginning of the message. Those burdens that threaten to crush us. And not only will it help us avoid the bad fruit, but abiding will lead to an incredibly productive, fruitful, and rewarding life for the glory of Christ while we are here. So let's go ahead and read this passage together. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, so you abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now we can learn a lot about abiding here from this little paragraph, just a few verses. And we're going to frame up our passage tonight around three statements. Three statements that are going to help us cultivate this dependent relationship. And as we get going, I want you to notice that the command itself, the command to abide, it comes all the way down kind of toward the end of the paragraph. You see that? It's in verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him. We're going to spend most of our time tonight unpacking and applying that command. But I want you to notice that before John ever tells us to abide in Christ, he wants to make sure that we understand that something else has happened that will enable us to abide. We can say it like this. It's our first statement. We are enabled to abide by the Spirit. We are enabled to abide by the Spirit. That's our first statement. It's what John wants us to know before we get into unpacking what it means to abide. He spends two verses on this. Look with me again in verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, so you abide in him. Before John ever commands us to abide, he wants us to make sure that we realize that abiding in Jesus does not start with us. He wants us to see that we have been enabled to abide by the anointing. 
which is his way of talking about the Spirit himself. And this is a wonderful assurance, especially in these last days when deception abounds. John starts this paragraph by reminding his readers that people were actively trying to deceive them. He's talking about those false teachers that had arisen from within. They were still plaguing this church. And the same could be said of us today. There's so many out there in the name of evangelicalism that are twisting the gospel, twisting the truth, perverting the truth in these last days, just as Jesus said. But what gives John confidence about these believers? What gives, them, what gives him confidence that these believers are going to stay faithful in the midst of all this deception? It's the presence of God's Spirit. It's the anointing. John says, you have the Spirit of the new covenant, this anointing, residing in you. You've been given Him freely at conversion. Do you realize tonight that if if you have believed in Jesus, you heard the gospel, it made sense to you, you saw your sin, you repented and believed in Him, that if that's true of you, it's because the Spirit has already quickened you. You can write down 1 John 5.1 on that, where he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has already been born of God. In other words, your faith, the fact that you believed in the Gospel when you heard it, evidences something about you that God has already brought you to life. And that faith is an evidence of new life. He made you alive. The Spirit made you alive. He opened your eyes. He unstopped your ears. And the third person of the Trinity remains in you even today, says John. But then he says something very puzzling, at least to me. He says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. So is John telling us that we don't need this right now? We don't need pastors or disciplers or anyone to help us understand the truth because we have the Spirit. Well, I doubt it because John's taken the time to write this letter to his church to help them understand some things. He's actively teaching them. He's actively shepherding them through this letter. So what does he mean? Well, it helps to realize that he is alluding to Jeremiah 31 right here in this passage. In this phrase, actually. And it's not the first time that he's done this in chapter 2. He did it back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he talked about all of us having knowledge. Jeremiah predicted a day when, when God would make a new covenant with his people. And this new covenant would be very unlike the old. He would write the law in their hearts, meaning he would teach his people. God himself would teach his people to obey him. Jeremiah 31, 33. But then he goes on in the passage to say this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, a hallmark of the new covenant is that we won't need to teach each other to know the Lord because we will all know Him. 
Jeremiah's point is that every person in this covenant will have a real relationship with Yahweh. Every member of the covenant. From the least to the greatest. And thus, they won't need any intermediaries or any kind of go-between for this relationship. So John's point here is similar. They're not dependent on any one person or human philosophy for access to God and recognition of His truth. Now this would have been very encouraging to them because those false teachers were likely, likely claiming that they had the anointing. And that access to, to truth was only through them. But that's not the case, says John, because all of you have the anointing, and He abides in you. You have everything you need. You have the Holy Spirit, who is our guide into all truth. He has taught us the truth about the real Jesus in conversion, and He continues to illumine our understanding as we sit under preaching, as we meditate, as we apply His Word. As encouraging as that is, John's point here in this passage is that the Spirit's ministry in our lives is precisely why we can abide in Christ. You see that? Look at verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, and then here's how I think it should be translated, so you abide in Him. Like a statement of reality. How many of you are reading from the ESV? Just curious. Okay, a lot of you. So you're saying, okay, well, it sounds like a command um, in, in the ESV. And that's how they translate it. It can go either way. They say, the ESV says, just as his anointing teaches you, command, abide in him. But, how many of you are reading from the NASB? The NASB translates it as a statement. But as His anointing teaches you, you abide in Him. So the form in Greek can go either way, depending on the context. And I think it's best here to translate it as a statement, not as a command. Because He's going to command us to abide in the very next verse. That's where the command lands. So here I think He's making a statement of reality. He's saying essentially that because we have the Spirit, that's why we abide. In other words, we're enabled to abide in Jesus because His Spirit has first taken His abode in us. So why is John stressing this? Well, it takes a lot of the pressure off, doesn't it? Throughout this letter, when I've studied through 1 John, one of the things I have been struck by is the Apostle John's quiet confidence. This church is a church in crisis, going through a church split, antichrists are all over the place, false prophets are trying to get at them, and here's John, twinkling his eye. He's concerned, but he's steady. John knows that the true sheep will persevere, ultimately because of God's life-giving spirit within them. The Holy Spirit will not ultimately let you fall away or stop abiding in Christ. Think about that. Why do you now love Christ 
when once you could have cared less about it? Why do you now see your sin and are broken by it when at one time you gloried in it and you bragged about it? Why do you now deeply love God's people and you want to be in the church when at one time you thought we were weird or judgmental and that the church is boring? Maybe you still think we're weird, but hey. Why have you done that? Why, what, what has happened to change you? The Spirit has brought you to life. And John says, that's why you abide. He's got you. It's like we like to sing. He will hold us fast. He's more concerned with you finishing well than you are. And He will see to it that you do. Now, John wants us to nail that down before we look in depth at abiding. But John also does not want us to misunderstand. Notice what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that we have no responsibility to strive to abide. Or that it's automatic. In the very next verse, John commands us to abide in Christ. Precisely because we can now through His Spirit. And precisely because His Spirit is now presently strengthening us for this abiding relationship. So that brings us to our second statement. We could say it like this. We are responsible to abide in Christ. So we're enabled to abide and we're now responsible to abide. You see the command there in verse 28. Now, little children, abide in Him. So precisely because of the Spirit's abiding, now we are called upon to abide in Christ. And like we saw earlier from John 15, John is telling us to stay dependent. Keep on depending on Jesus. But if we were to chase down some other texts in John's writings, we would see that Jesus himself spells out what this dependency looks like. He fleshes it out a little bit more. We might say he gives us kind of several dimensions to this abiding idea. It's his, arguably, it's his sort of overarching idea for the Christian life, his theme. Our, our, the Christian life is a life of abiding in Christ. Here's some dimensions to it. In John 6, it looks like eating and drinking Christ. John 6, 56. Sounds weird to us. and It was even more strange to his audience. But the point he's making is that to abide is to remain dependent on what Christ has accomplished. On his work, we might say. So I think we have some of these up on the screen. You guys can forward us the next screen there. So what's involved in abiding? It looks like remaining dependent. You got it. You can leave it up there. Remaining dependent on Christ's work. That's eating and drinking Him. We want to remain dependent on His work, on what He's accomplished. To abide, we must abandon ourselves and receive His body broken for us and His blood shed for us on the cross. His atoning work. And we must learn to stay there. 
to stay dependent on the gospel, to relate to God day by day on that basis, not on our own merit. Say it a little differently. We must allow Him to love us first in our unloveliness. We have to receive His forgiveness of us without our paying for it in some way. We have to let Him wash our feet when we don't deserve it. We've got to come back to this daily. Practically, I like to start my mornings, even my Bible reading time, with a short prayer. Thanking God for loving me first. Continuing to love me because of Christ. It's our only hope. And this helps to reorient my heart to His grace, to His consistent and steady love, to His life-giving presence. Even in my sin, He's there. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to love. He's actively shepherding, actively encouraging, actively disciplining me when it's necessary because of His love. And the first step to abiding is learning to remain dependent on Jesus and His work on your behalf. Learning to eat and drink Christ, John 6, 56. And that's not all. Abiding also involves remaining dependent on His words. Remaining dependent on the truth. John eight thirty one. Jesus says there in John 8, He says this, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's Jesus' words that we're to depend upon. His words recorded and elaborated on by the inspired apostles. Apostles like John. He's saying that's what's really true. Jesus' words are the truth. To abide in Jesus is to depend on the Bible. It's to abandon yourself to what the Bible says. And that means we've got to understand it. We have to believe it. We have to turn away from our own wisdom or what seems right to us in the moment and even what we may feel in a given scenario. If it contradicts, His words. Abiding in Jesus looks like discovering the lies that our flesh tempts us to believe. And it looks like obliterating those lies with Christ's word, with the truth. And this means then that any time truth comes to us, Anytime we abandon ourselves to the truth by faith, anytime we yield to what the Scripture says instead of what we feel or what we want, we are abiding in Jesus. How so? Because, as he says, we are depending upon his words. And finally, there's a third dimension to abiding. It's the outflow of the last one. Abiding involves keeping His commands, particularly the command to love.
So again, you could, you could even argue it's, it's, part of the, it's part of the second one, remaining dependent on Christ's words. Dependent on Christ's words is going to look like obedience. But he's, he draws this out in John 15. Jesus connects our obedience in verse, John 15, verse 10. He connects our obedience with abiding in Him. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Then, he tells us, in verse 12, what this commandment is. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So this means then, that any time we love others with the love of Christ, that we are actively abiding in Jesus. When we radically give ourselves away for the good of others, often at great cost to ourselves, we complete the abiding circuit, if you will. And it begins at at the first bullet point, and then comes all the way around to us demonstrating the love that we've received. Because notice in, in chapter 15, verse 12 of John's Gospel, he commands us to love one another as I have loved you. The circuit is complete. And all these dimensions of abiding function together. It starts with receiving Jesus' love, demonstrated in His death for us, and then remaining dependent day by day on that love. And that leads to learning to depend on His words daily, above what we think or feel in ourselves. And then that outflow, what that will result in, is yielding ourselves to His Word in obedience, moment by moment, situation by situation, especially as we love others like He has loved us. And if I had a diagram, I'm not very good at PowerPoint, but it would be a circle. You know, at the, at the top would be dependent on Christ's work, that first bullet point. And it would be an arrow, kind of curve, to remaining dependent on His words, and then a curve to loving others, and then a curve back to remaining dependent on His, his love. It's, a, it's like a circuit, because our love for others yields us greater insight into God's love for us. Which leads to greater dependence on His words, which leads to more zeal in love for others. And that's what's involved in abiding. So with this wider view of what abiding involves, let's think practically about how we can cultivate this dependent relationship. We all drift. I do. You do. And drift sounds so polite. We just sever ourselves from the vine. (laughs) We try to act independently of Jesus. Like functional atheists. But the Spirit will not let us stay there. Remember, the Spirit is convicting, compelling, even shepherding us to this greater dependency. But what can we do to cultivate this dependence, to cultivate this abiding relationship? Well, we kind of automatically, I think, jump to the individual stuff that we can do. We're going to get there. But I want to to have you consider the corporate side of this for a moment. So the first thing I would say to somebody that would ask me that question is this. I would say prioritize the church gatherings and the life of the body. I think we have some more slides here on this one as well. 
So prioritize the church gatherings and the life of the body. Why would I say that? Well, because Christ has designed his church to grow us in our dependence on him. Christ has designed the church to grow us in our dependence on him. That's what abiding is, depending on Jesus. Let's think this through a little bit. Preaching and singing. Commanded to do both of those. Christ has ordained the public preaching, reading, even singing of the scriptures as one of the primary ways he speaks his word to his people. For a long time in church history, the normal Christian did not have their personal copy of God's word. And yet, God sustained his church through the public reading and proclamation of his word. That means then that our abiding, our depending, will be dramatically enhanced as we sit under faithful preaching as much as we can. We'll learn about Christ, we'll learn his words, we'll have guidance on how they apply. Sermons provide you with all kinds of material to meditate on in your own private devotions. It gives you, the corporate singing gives you songs to sing during your own quiet times. We also grow in our own personal Bible reading as the pastors model good Bible study for us. I'm sure you've experienced that. So, preaching and singing are ways that, that, that our dependence is cultivated. Prayer is another one. As we receive prayer and we join in the pastoral prayers, we even pray for each other before and after services, we are all acknowledging our dependence on God. Prayer reminds us that we are absolutely dependent on God for everything. If you don't pray, that's a telltale sign of your independent attitude. So when the pastors pray, are you joining along with them in your heart? Are you adding to their prayers? Are you praying for others after service? This is designed to increase our dependence on the Lord, our abiding relationship with Him. One of the obvious things that I'm looking at right now, right in front of me, is the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, in the, in the, the, the table that we're going to participate in tonight, we are feasting on Christ's body and blood like we saw earlier in John 6. What I mean is we're together saying we depend only on your death for our reconciliation with God. We depend only on what you've accomplished for our entrance into this covenant relationship. That's what we're saying when we take communion. Now, my kids are in Michigan tonight, and they're, they're visiting family with uh, my wife Mary. But I love having them here during the communion services. Um, obviously at any time during corporate worship, but I like the communion services because it kind of gets their attention. i got young kids, five, three, and one. And it gets their attention. I like to remind them why Jesus wants us to keep on taking the Lord's Supper. And it's so that we don't forget that he loves us. It's the simplest way I could explain it to my five-year-old. So we don't forget. There's a lot more to it than that. But so we don't forget that he loves us. Jesus himself wants us to stay dependent on him. And he's given us the table to help us remember. Another way we stay dependent in the body, 
through the body, I should say, is by the relationships that are forged within it. Relationships in our Sunday school classes and small groups are wonderful means to cultivating dependence on Jesus. How so? Well, we learn from others how to trust Jesus in specific situations of life. Not only do we learn, but we get to love others right here in the body, and that enhances our dependence on Jesus too. So that means when someone sins against you, you've got to work through it. You've got to forgive them. You've got to go to them. You've got to have that hard conversation. You've got to sit down. They might misunderstand you. And you have to really do the hard work that nobody likes to do that this is actually a God-given means to enhance your abiding. Because you're actively loving others for the sake of Christ when you do that. You're learning more about His love for you, what it took to forgive you. Now, beyond the, the corporate dynamic, here's kind of, I wanted you to just think about the corporate side. There's an obvious individual dynamic to abiding. That's kind of where, at least that's where my mind always goes. Christ is personal, and He abides with each one of us who have believed in Him. He knows us deeply, and He wants us to grow in reciprocating the depth of that relationship. So what are some other ways that we can cultivate dependence on Him? Well, you want to carve out specific times to read and pray. Or... Cultivate specific times to abide in Christ, and preferably in the morning. I've got some goals for this time. Again, just sharing kind of experientially here. I I shared it just a moment ago, but my, my first goal as I come to Christ is to remind myself of my dependence and my need for Him and His love for me. That's primary. That's where it starts. Even if I've been independent, I've missed my communion time with the Lord, my abiding time for several days in a row, come back to Him and His love for me, my need for Him, and I come to Him in repentance and faith. Another goal is to to hear from His truthful perspective, His words. As I read through His Word, or as I meditate on a sermon, as I try to memorize a verse, Right now, my general practice is just to read through the Bible. Just try not to complicate it. So just reading through it and read as much as I can in the time I've got allotted. And then I pray back to the Lord something that He's showing me from that day's reading. Again, not complicated. But that's a major goal. I want to hear from God, from His Word. Not some mystical experience, but what He has revealed, what He's actually said. And then, obviously in responding to God, I want to roll my anxieties, any anxieties, any burdens, any of that big long laundry list that I I went through at the beginning, I want to roll those over onto Christ. And more than just rolling them over, I want to try to think the right way. I want to try to see those burdens in the right way as Christ would have me see them, which are opportunities for fruit. We think about these burdens, we think about these these sufferings, these things that come into our lives as the worst thing for us. And humanly speaking, they often are. 
But from God's perspective, either we believe Romans 8.28 or we don't. That God means all things for good. Even these trials and difficulties. Because He is doing so many things in these burdens. Even the daily ones. And these are opportunities to bear fruit. Eternal fruit for the glory of Christ. And for your ultimate joy. But we need help to see this. So I'm often asking the Lord to show me how to best capitalize on these burdens. Sleepless infant. That was a tough one. Chronic pain. Financial pressures. What is the Lord doing? Lord, what are you doing? Even better. Help me. Direct me to your scriptures to see to have insight into these situations in my life? What fruit are you seeking to bear in my heart? What opportunities are before me? If I can just learn to trust you in this area, how would you have me act that could make a difference? And so when we're thinking about this, just carving out specific times to read and pray, I obviously said in the morning, I think that's crucial. You know, you don't tune your instrument after you play. Um, You tune your instrument before you play. So that you can play. So your day is before you. This is the day that God's given you. And so you want a renewed mind heading into that day. Daniel has three, had three times a day, right? He prayed at different junctures of the day. Um, I like kind of bookending the day. Like, you know, think about it like that. Obviously, I'm going to talk about, in, in a minute about um, having a, uh, living in the presence of God through your day. But I like the bookends of the day. This helps me to, to, to lay out the day before him at the beginning and then come back around at the end, and kind of evaluate. I'm not asleep already. So, those are just some thoughts that I'm cultivating and carving out specific times to, to read and pray and seek the Lord. The next thing I would say is learning to live dependently in the presence of God is crucial. So we grow in abiding as we learn to, to put into practice what we believe. That God is with us at all times. That he's over every circumstance. We want to learn to see his hand, his involvement in all there is, both the good and the challenging. We want to be less and less like the functional atheist who does their 10% quiet time, 10 minute quiet time, beginning of their day, and then they live as though God doesn't exist for the rest of their, their day. Instead, we want to learn to live in His presence, interpreting all of life as from Him and in Him and to Him. So, what do you, okay, what do you mean? Just help me think this through. Well, your kid wakes up early and interrupts your quiet time. Hypothetical, right? What would happen if you saw this as from God's hand? God's interrupting your quiet time. But your quiet time's not over. Because obedience and responding to your child with humility, grace, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, you're learning about God in that moment. God is teaching you about Himself. God is present. He is instructing you in your quiet time. And it's different than how you imagined it. So again, what what would happen if you saw this as from God's hand? If you learned to live in God's presence in that moment. Again, when a friend sins against you, hurts you, 
right? What would happen if you saw this as a chance to extend love? And so abide in Christ in that moment. What fruit can be produced in this situation? That's countercultural. Somebody's made you a favorite meal. Doesn't always have to be bad, okay? Somebody made you a favorite meal. Takes you out to a nice restaurant. Christ is in control of that. He gave you that, ultimately. And this is an opportunity to abide in Him, in your heart, knowing that He knows what you need. And He likes to bless His children, even in this sin-cursed world. So just learning to, to live in these moments of your day and seeing God is very involved and very eager to grow you in, in the day-to-day, even in the most mundane moments. The next thing I would say is how we grow in abiding is learning to repent of the bad fruit moments of your day. This is kind of the, the, the negative side. Learning to repent of the bad fruit moments in your day, and they will be there. So those moments when your will is crossed, something happens you don't want, or you're overwhelmed and you're anxious, or you've disobeyed the Lord in some way. So repenting, what is that? that looks like confessing, returning to the love of Jesus in that moment. You don't have to wait till your quiet time. I like to think of this as realigning my heart with Christ's in the moment, instead of just like barreling on in, in an independent way. I like to think of it as maybe even getting back in line behind him in discipleship, instead of anxiously or, or angrily getting out in front of him. And half the battle, half the battle is recognizing that this is going on. Recognizing the absence of the fruit of the Spirit and the presence of the, the works of the flesh. And then realizing this and having the humility to own it in those moments. That's at least half the battle, maybe more. We always have the capacity for joy. We always have the capacity for contentment. We always have the capacity for a restedness in Christ and His Spirit. That's because His Spirit's always abiding. And so just be quick to identify and repent of those bad fruit moments in your day because they're going to be there. You're not going to be perfect. Life is a battle. Growth is progressive. So don't be overly discouraged when it's there. Just handle it in God's intended means of confession and repentance. And then, last thing here, just be obedient. Be intentional about obedience to Christ. So I guess I said there, be intentional and specific in obedience to Christ. What I mean by that is, is we grow in our abiding as we obey His commands, like we saw, particularly that command to love. So think through then all the spheres of your life. Church, relationships, your college student, your school relationships, your dorm life, your family, your work. You don't have to do this all at once. But kind of work through these areas and think through what would it look like to love those folks for Christ's sake. What opportunities do I have that I'm not seeing as opportunities? And be specific. It often looks like a change in attitude, a sensitivity to what the Lord is doing in their lives, and a seeking out how we might be used by God in their lives. 
And like we saw earlier, our love for others will actually come to enhance our relationship with Christ. So we've taken some time to really spread out what abiding looks like, how we can cultivate it. We're just scratching the surface here. There's lots of things we could say, kind of in application, but that's just to get, get, your, get the juices flowing. But John keeps going in this passage, and he gives us a really huge incentive to abide in Christ. And that'll be our third statement. We're going to end here tonight. We'll call it, we're incentivized to abide. We're motivated. John gives us a major, not the only, but a major, major incentive. So does John 15, by the way. So that would be a fun exercise out of this, just to read through John 15 and write down all the incentives that Jesus gives to abide. Um, Profound. But here in this text, he gives us another one. Why should we abide? Look Look at the end of verse 28. Now little children, abide in him so that... When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So why should we abide? John says, this, because if we do, we will have incredible boldness at the return of Jesus. We won't be ashamed. We won't shrink back at his coming. If Christ returned right now, at this very moment, and you stood before him, how would your heart respond? Would you run forward to embrace him? Relieved that the struggle is over, overjoyed that he's here, excited to finally be in the presence of your greatest friend, your friend whom you've learned to trust, like the song said, the friend that you've learned to pour your heart out to, the friend that you've seen answer your prayers and use you to advance his kingdom. That is the boldness John is talking about here that comes from an abiding relationship. Or, would your heart respond in terror? In deep regret? Ashamed that you had spent so much time, so much energy, so much devotion on sinful pursuits? Or would you be startled Because you're living like that functional atheist without much thought ever of his return. Or what he might say to you upon his return. Or would you be secretly disappointed because he didn't allow you to experience something on this side like meeting your career goals or getting married or having kids or seeing your kids get married. That would be shrinking back in shame at his coming. But get this, to the one who is learning to abide in Jesus, to the one who's learning to depend on Him moment by moment, there will be a growing anticipation. It won't be perfect, but there will be a growing anticipation, a growing boldness in their heart to meet the Lord, to see Him coming on the clouds. An excitement to stand before Him. Why? Because this kind of heart is secure in the Father's love. It knows it's not perfect, but its desire is to yield its will to Christ's will. 
It's grieved over its continual hardness, but it daily tastes of the mercy of Christ. And it anticipates the future mercy that we will receive at His return. We might say it like this. There's a holy familiarity to the friendship. And it grows as we abide. And so we are bold when He appears. You want that? You want that kind of boldness at the return of Jesus? And John says, day by day, moment by moment, abide. Don't worry about the rest of your life. Just worry about today. Can you entrust yourself to Jesus today? Can you entrust yourself to Jesus in the next minute? Because that's what he's asking. Today. And one day turns into lots of days, turns into years, turns into a lifetime of faithfulness. Day by day, abide in Him, John says. That's our great incentive here, boldness at the return of Christ. So I'm sure you can see why this instruction is so central for John. It guards us from so many evils if we learn to depend on Him. It produces so much fruit. It makes sense why he included it here in this letter to this church to help them navigate this world and all the antichrists and false prophets in it. And my encouragement to you as we close tonight is to think back through the part about cultivating this dependent relationship and just make a note of one thing, one thing that stuck out to you, one thing that you want to start doing in your relationship with Christ or maybe redo, come back to and maybe ask somebody else to sit next to you what they found to help them cultivate dependence on Christ. And let's learn from each other. But as you strive to depend on Him, remember, He wants intimacy more than you do, so much so that He died to make it a reality. He wants intimacy so much that He's given His Spirit to you to help you cultivate it. He's given us communion that we're going to celebrate in just a moment to remember Him. So draw near to Him in humble confidence. Confidence of His love toward you as His child and the joyful fruit that He will produce in and through you as you abide. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this Word. We're thankful for Your Spirit. We pray that You would help us to abide in You. In Christ's name.